You're listening to SBS on the Money with Ricardo Gonsalves. It's a daily 10-minute business and finance news wrap for this Tuesday, the 12th of December 2023. On Market Day, we'll speak with Jamie Hanna from Van Eck for a look at the investment opportunities in 2024. But first, to the Australian dollar, where it's been 40 years since it was floated. So for a detailed look, Raina Bosch spoke with Chris Weston, the head of research at Pepperstone. So Chris, today we're reflecting on 40 years since the Australian dollar was floated. Can you talk us through why that decision was made? I think we go back to the the history um, of the exchange rates in Australia. I mean, we've been yeah, the government and the, the central bank have been toying with all different types of ex- ways of, of, of creating the exchange rate. We've been on the, the, the British pound gold standard up until, I think, 1931. We went on to a pure peg against the pound. Uh, then we sort of went to a peg against the US dollar. Uh, we went to a sort of a, a, a crawling peg, effectively. And we tried out different factors that played through over the years. Um, but I think we got to the point where, you know, with, with such a heavy reliance on commodity prices, when we have a terms of trade shock, you ultimately need a weaker currency. We went into 1982 as well with huge amounts of hot inflows coming to Australia. We saw we're just coming out the back of a drought. Commodity prices were rising very strongly. We had positive interest rate differentials and very, very high levels of inflation at the time in 1982. Uh, and I felt, you know, certainly the government wanted to be moving into a situation where we had a much more freely floated uh, currency. So I think over the years, they tried many different things. And uh, I think, you know, just through the evolution of the exchange rates, um, you know, the free, float, free floating exchange rate was, was the right one for that time. Now, if we look at the history of the AUD, there are these obvious fluctuations from a low of 47.75 US cents back in 2001, all the way up to a high of $1.10 in 2011. What caused that boom? Well, I think if you go down to the lows that you spoke about there, that came through in April 2001 and sort of coincide with with a massive risk off event. This big sort of risk aversion came through in global markets as we saw you know, the, the, the US tech bubble unwind. And you go to the characteristics of the Australian dollar. It's not just a commodity currency. We benefit from commodities and also our relationship with China. But also it has this kind of proxy of risk. So when equity markets are falling, uh, you see the Australian dollar typically falling. And when, when you see the, the equity markets rallying, you typically see the opposite is true. And the, and the Aussie dollar you know, moves in correlation with that situation. So when we saw the tech bubble bursting, the Nasdaq uh, you know, falling very, very sharply, you know, global equity markets tumbling. You know, ultimately, we saw that you know, bringing the Australian dollar down through just pure risk of ocean affairs. As life went on, I think you know, we got that into sort of 110 post the GFC, where we saw a, a big drawdown through that period as well. But ultimately, we saw a situation situation where the Fed embarked on quantitative easing, which was the, the idea of devaluing their currency and, and you know, increasing reserves in the system. Uh, and that, that had a big effect globally um, after we got out of GFC of, of, of reflating markets, causing commodity prices to rise, equity markets to boom. Um, of course, from 2008, we saw this huge equity rally. And of course, that pushed the Australian dollar up in correlation with that. And we've just been fluctuating since. So you've got to look at the characteristics of the Australian dollar. Uh, and when we typically see these big moves in equity markets, you see the Australian dollar following suit as well. So will we ever see the Australian dollar hit that kind of a peak again? I don't. I, I never say never. I mean, it's it, making a forecast that long out and and that far out to get 
yeah, I think in 1981 we got up to one, well, just shy of 119. Um, but yeah, if we, do we get do we get back to parity is a, a question we feel quite a lot at the moment. And yeah, I guess in that situation you probably need equity markets to continue finding a nice grind higher. You would probably need to see. Um, China really outperforming, copper prices moving higher, you know, terms of trade, iron ore, all moving up quite nicely. But certainly we'd need to see in a situation where China really started to outperform. We have seen three years now of Chinese equity markets underperforming global markets. A lot of that capital has been moving into, into the US and tech stocks, for example. So we'd need to see China really outperforming. And we probably need to see interest rate differentials working quite sharply in our favor. So the Fed looking to cut rates uh, far, you know, far quicker than the RBA will be doing, which is a a really a potential thematic that we're seeing at the moment being priced into markets so that it could happen. But I think the stars would need to align in that thesis that I just talked about for a move back above parity and into 110. Now, turning our attention quickly to some of the other major currencies, you've spoken about how the Australian dollar trades against the US. How is it faring against the lack of the euro or the British pound? Well, since the since we moved to a floating exchange rate uh, on the 8th of December to, uh, 1983, um, well, you know, certainly the pound, uh, sorry, the Australian dollars uh, lost about 22% of its value in, in that time. Obviously, there's other factors involved, but it's, you know, it's, it's fallen a little bit in, in that time. Uh, where you've seen the big move, I think, is against the Swiss franc. So certainly the Swiss franc has, has gained about 115% in that time against the Australian dollar. Um, the Australian dollar has appreciated quite nicely against the pound in that time, as it has done with things like South African rand, Mexican peso. Um, but yeah, I think I guess if you're looking at um, you know where we've the, the sort of major currencies we look at, it's really you know we've lost ground in the Australian dollar against the Swiss franc, against the the um, against the euro, and also against uh, the US dollar as well over that time. At the risk of asking a hyper generalized question, how does the investment community view the Australian dollar? Is it something that's favourable? What kind of a role does it play more broadly? Well, I, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we use it as a risk proxy, as I say. I mean, if, if people are feeling good about the world and specifically around China and, and equity markets are moving higher, we, we like to use it as a weapon for expressing that view, so to speak. But if we look forward into 2024, I think um, there is a, a general favourable bias um, in the, yeah, the market from strategists and from economists, um, as was the case last year. And I think, you know, making assumptions and predictions on currencies is very, very difficult because, you know, you put a you, you have a model and you plug in this set of assumptions like terms of trade, like GDP, inflation. And if any one of those assumptions are wrong, suddenly your model and your prediction of where that currency is going to go by a certain time is, is, is broken. And that's why, generally speaking, uh, yeah, these things are um, and forecasts are, are not worth you know, the paper they're written on. But we need them. We need to use them to plug into into models and understand expected returns. But generally speaking, at this point, precise moment, um, people are taking a more favourable view on the Australian dollar. I think the consensus view is that by by Q4 2024, the Australian dollar will appreciate to about 70 cents. I think that's just a, a, a general view that there are downside risks more broadly in the US dollar. Um, but I think if you look at relative growth rates, 
people are expecting um, Australian growth while expected to call should be somewhat better than, than a lot of the other G10 currencies. Um, you know, if you look at what's expected in terms of RBA action, yeah, we are, the market is expecting one rate cut later next year, but they're expecting four in the US. They're expecting even more in Europe. Um, you know, the, the, the Bank, of, um, Bank of England are expected to cut two or three times. So if you look at it from a, from a relative policy expectations, um, people are seeing less scope for the Reserve Bank to cut um, than than other central banks. Again, that's that's sort of feeding into the idea that we could see a slightly stronger Australian dollar this year, uh, next year. Chris Weston there from Pepperstone. Now, market day on the SBS on the Money podcast. To the Australian share market now, which rose today, the S and P ASX two hundred up zero point five percent to seven thousand two hundred and thirty five. For more, I spoke with Jamie Hanna from Vanek. He is the deputy head of investments and capital markets there. Jamie, what's driving the market today? Well, the market's only up about half a percent today, so it's not big movements in any direction, to be honest. It's really taking its lead from what's happened in the US and Europe overnight, where their trading was generally lacklustre. They're waiting on some economic data to come out this week. So nothing strong leading our market. Basically, if you look at some of the sectors in Australia, some of the property companies in Australia are doing well, while some small resource companies uh, have fallen a bit. But overall, quite relatively quiet. So is it fair to say investors are waiting for that US inflation data to be released later tonight and all these central banks meeting later this week? I think you've got um, the US Central Bank, the Bank of England and the European Central Bank as well. Yeah, there's a lot of economic data to come out this week, but but the primary thing will be tonight, which is the US inflation numbers to come out. Um, everyone in terms of the market, in terms of economists, are expecting it to be a little bit lower than what it has been, which will then therefore lead into the fact that, well, they shouldn't raise interest rates on the following day when, when the US Central Bank meets. If we look at the US Central Bank interest rates, they're sitting at about 525 to 5.5%, whereas in Australia, we're still sitting at 4.35%. So they're already higher. So what we would hope across the market is that we're seeing some pullback in the US inflation and, and no interest rate rise. If the CPI, as in the US inflation print, comes out higher than expected, I'd expect some volatility in the share market over the last part of this week. One of the key stories of the week is Chemist Warehouse basically seeking an ASX listing, but by merging with Sigma Healthcare. If approved, this takes Sigma from an $800 million company to an $8.8 billion one. So how significant is this deal? Look, this deal is absolutely significant. We don't see a lot of this type of activity on the Australian Stock Exchange on any given year. If we even look back in time, the last big listing was probably Medibank in 2014. So it's just a different type of listing. It's a reverse takeover where Chemist Warehouse is listing based on an existing company called Sigma. So in essence, it's going to be Chemist Warehouse. So it's good in the fact that Sigma has some synergies with Chemist Warehouse, as in they were a supplier to Chemist Warehouse. So the company already has some relationship. What is strange is that it didn't go the initial public offer route, the IPO route, but it doesn't matter. For an Australian investor, they'll still be able to buy what is essentially a very large Australian company, a well-known brand that everyone sees as they go to the shopping malls um, on any given week. So it gives uh, more opportunity for Australians to invest. The downside from this deal is that we don't actually know how the deal is going to be structured, how many shares are actually going to be available for trading and how it will trade on the ASX. 
Is it going to come in as a top 50 company on the ASX and trade like a top 50 company? That type of information is really what we're waiting on so we can understand the deal in more detail. We, have, we haven't seen a lot of IPOs recently. Do you think we'll see more of these types of deals? And I mean, we're still waiting to see, for example, Virgin Australia. Could it come through by buying Rex, for example? Look, these types of reverse takeovers, they're not that common. They do happen more in international markets in Australia, but they, they take away a lot of opportunities the company might have to, to direct and kind of dictate how they're going to get into the market. They'd also have to give up some control to the existing company, which they're re- either merging with or reverse takeovering into. So that type of thing isn't common. So I wouldn't think that Virgin, for example, would go down that route initially. I think a standard initial public offering going out to the market allows them to control um, their kind of marketing, control how they're perceived in the market and control the whole entire narrative. Um, So it would still be um, most likely to come via an IPO than the way that Chemist Warehouse has done. But you never know. These things, you know, you get one, you're more likely to get another if the market has perceived Chemist Warehouse to to be successful. So it's really just a matter of waiting and seeing. But I would hope to see another big IPO or two in 2024. Speaking of 2024, this is likely to be the last time I speak to you this year. I want you to look into your crystal ball. Where do you see the opportunities for investors in 2024? Looking forward to next year, we're really seeing rates higher for longer. We're not expecting any interest rate cuts early in 2024, so we're really going to be watching the economic data. What that means is initially in 2024, we are still going to be quite defensive in our portfolio um, as some of this economic data plays out. That means that, you know, We think you should be extremely well diversified in the portfolio, not overweight any particular sector or economy or country at the moment. And we would really focus on really companies that are quality. And I mean companies that have low debt um, so they're not paying any, any excess interest on any of their debt and also some solid earnings. And those companies have generally done relatively well in 2023 and I think they'll continue to do well in 2024. One small part of the economy which is showing some form of opportunity might be gold mining stocks, so the underlying shares that that produce gold. So gold price has rallied quite a bit in 2023, yet the underlying gold mining companies haven't. They've stayed quite low, which means that either the gold price is too high or that the gold shares should come up because they're going to be earning more money selling gold for more money than they were previously. So there's probably some opportunities there. Um, Overall, though, you have to be diversified, but you will still see some yield next year because interest rates won't be pulling back anytime soon in the year. You should still get some decent returns on a term deposit or investing in any bond or fixed income type investment. That is Jamie Hanna there from Van Eck. This SBS On The Money podcast is provided for informational purposes only. The content on this podcast should not be understood as constituting advice or a recommendation. It is not personal advice and does not consider your personal circumstances or objectives. You should contact a licensed professional before making any financial decision.